Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Well, I want to tell you guys about the greatest underdog story that's ever been told. And uh, some of you are probably flipping to 1 Samuel, David and Goliath. It's actually not that. Um, it's not that. Uh, sports fans probably thinking about 1980, U.S. versus Russia, middle of the Cold War, huge upset in the hockey game. Uh, amazing. It's not that. Uh, some of you... Uh, really good fans of like good cinema are probably thinking about small-time DVD thief that turns into an all-star action hero named Dominic Toretto. It's not that. If you're new here, so sorry. We love Fast and Furious here. And by we, I mean I. Uh, the greatest underdog story ever told is in 2006, Center Grove High School in Greenwood, Indiana had a dodgeball tournament. And uh, I and my other sophomore, relatively scrawny friends decided to get into it. And uh, we weren't like not cool, but we weren't like the cool kids. And we weren't not athletic, but we weren't like the athletic kids. But we got in this tournament because uh, that's what you do as a sophomore boy when there's a tournament that's presented that means nothing in life. And so we got in and uh, uh, there were seven of us at six on six though. We had to tell, it was a hard conversation, we had to tell one of our friends, Zach, same one that a few weeks ago stood on a stool. We had to tell him, bro, I'm so sorry. You're just not athletic enough. And he's like, I know. He's like, I'll be the coach. So he's the coach of our dodgeball team. And we sign up and we show up there. And then we see a few of the other teams. We thought we might have a decent chance of winning. Uh, but there was the baseball team. The freshman football t- players were there. Which, yeah, they were younger than us. But they, like, won state a couple uh, their senior year. Like, most athletic class that my school had ever had. And then there was the senior football players, which were really large. And uh, so we signed up, we did it, and uh, we played the first game. And one of the things that we had going for us is we had a coach with a strategy. And uh, all of us kind of knew our own role. There were two specific roles I'll tell you about. One was me, because uh, I'm telling the story, so I'll tell you what I do. I had a very unique gift as a sophomore. Uh, and it's in a world where everyone had hit puberty, I had not. <laughs> and that sounds like a disadvantage. And it was. In like sports other than this, dating, getting the top shelf of my locker, all of those were really difficult. But in dodgeball, you had to try to hit a target that was five foot. It's the end of that sentence. I was just five foot. (laughs) Sophomore year of high school. And I was relatively quick, so my job was to run around with the ball and try to just get them to throw it at me and deflect it up in the air so other people could catch it. And then there was uh, my friend Jonathan, who was... uh, had the opposite problem with me. He was pretty, he was pretty big and uh, not quick at all, but great hand-eye coordination. And so uh, Jonathan, his job was just to make sure that he could catch the ball. Like, don't do anything else. Don't ever try to dodge. Like, that's not your thing. Just try to catch the ball. And so we entered this tournament, and our coach shows up uh, in a suit. We're sophomores in high school. He shows up in a suit, and he memorized a Lou Holtz speech. And he yelled at us that speech before, the, before our first game. And we weren't inspired at all. We were mostly annoyed. But uh, 
but we went out there, and one thing that our coach reminded us to do is only do what you're good at. And so we played the freshman football team first. Again, crazy athletic. They didn't have the same problem we did. They were six out of six hitting puberty. Good for them. Uh, shaving, whatever. And uh, we beat them, which was a huge upset. They were younger than us, but they were way more athletic. And then we played against the, uh, the junior and senior baseball team. And I've never had anything thrown at me at the speed at which those guys could throw a dodgeball. It was unbelievable. And, uh, but Zach yelled at us. We stuck to our strategy. And seriously, a huge upset. We beat them. Again, just like at this point, these like relatively unknown sophomores are like starting to be the, the people that everyone's rooting for. And so finally, we play against the senior football team. And they were large and muscular and mean, like legitimately just kind of mean. And... Uh, and we played them, and they just started, they started to just annihilate us. And uh, like 90 seconds into the game, it's six on six, but they had four people left, and we just had one. And the only one left was Jonathan. And, uh, and Jonathan knew what he was good at. And so here's what he did. He, he, he planted his heels on the back line of the basketball court, and he just stood there. Like, and everyone's yelling at him, like, you're just stalling. You're just playing defense. And he didn't move his heels. Because he knew what he was good at, and he really knew what he was bad at. And so they finally started to get frustrated and started just launching rockets at him. And if it wasn't right at him, he'd just kind of like, oh, miss. Like, again, not super quick, but just turn his shoulder. <laughs> Until once, they threw just an like, absolute rocket right at his chest, and Jonathan absorbed it. Which is interesting, because now they have three players, and we have two. And I think it was me that actually got to go back in, and I start running around doing... What I'm doing, and Zach's like, no, just, just let Jonathan do it. So Jonathan plants his heels, and he just stands there. And they start yelling at him things that we probably shouldn't say in church. And uh, they're accusing him of stalling. But everyone's kind of starting to root for us, and they're starting to, like, chant. His last name's Gandalf. So they, we cheat, start chanting Gandhi. And, uh, again, he dodges. No, that's not a good one. Another one right at his chest catches it. Now we have three, they have two, we knock one of theirs out, they knock one of ours out. It's 2v1, our advantage. This guy gets so frustrated that this guy won't move off the back line that finally he turns his back and starts complaining, and Jonathan throws it and hits him in the back. <laughs> we win the dodgeball championship. Don't believe me, there it is. Jonathan's the top left, and uh, that little small target, that's the bottom right. <laughs> Greatest underdog story that's ever been told. We... Uh, we ended up enter entering it the next year as well, and, uh, and two-time defending champions, although at that point we were regarded as a force to be reckoned with. And, uh, and what happened in that story, uh, what happened with uh, Jonathan specifically, is, is we had all kind of given up on the strategy or just assumed he was trying to stall, but he knew exactly what he was doing. Everyone thought he was playing defense. Everyone thought that he was just trying to lengthen the game, but he actually was playing offense. What looked like defense to everyone else, for Jonathan, actually was him playing the best form of offense that he could. We're going to talk more about that in Acts 17. And I just wanted to tell you guys, like, I used to be somebody. <laughs> I used to be, like, a really big deal in the high school dodgeball world. Uh, there's a common phrase in sports that says defense wins championships. Uh, a guy named Bear Bryant kind of coined that phrase, and it was mostly true for a while, but statistics are starting to show that's actually not true in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, um, that although it helps get like lazy kids to care about um, 
something other than just scoring the point. Uh, it's mostly just used for that in like Little League basketball and football now. Statistics show both Forbes and Bleacher Report and uh, even Freakonomics all did studies and show actually it's more important to have a good offense. Um, defense does win championships, but offense usually wins more of them. And so it's this idea that uh, offense is usually the best form of defense. So we're in the middle of a series through the book of Acts. I'm sure you're dying to know how this ties in. Uh, Megan, our kids director, just killed it last week, right? I mean, she was awesome. She did so well. And she left us in Acts 16, which was in Philippi. And so we're in Philippi, and she uh, leaves Paul and Silas there. And so today we're in Acts 17. Paul goes to three different places. I'm going to summarize the first two and land on the third. The first place he goes is a place called Thessalonica. And, uh, and he kind of does the standard thing. He goes to the synagogue first, and he starts to see uh, some Jewish people come to believe in Jesus. And then he goes to the marketplace, and all of a sudden a church starts. And from what we know, he was there a few months. Not a real long time, but a church starts in Thessalonica. And, uh, and then, as is his custom, he gets kicked out of the city, and he has to leave, but not before a church was started. And, of course, we have the book of Thessalonians that is Paul writing back to the church that he started in Acts 17. One of the phrases from um, that portion of Scripture, if you read, like, the first, I think it's like eight verses of Acts 17, while he's in Thessalonica, it said, and this was meant to be an indictment, uh, but the reason they got him kicked out and the way that they got him removed is they said this about him and the people that were around that area of the world. They said, um, these men have turned the world upside down. And it was an indictment against Paul and the apostles because what they're doing, it's turning the world upside down. And I wonder if what was meant to be an indictment was actually a compliment because um, Paul had such influence in the region and the disciples had such influence in the region that somebody could accuse them of turning the world upside down. And, uh, and I want to like just stop and pray right now that that would still be true of us. And that sounds like a big vision, but the church of Jesus can do it. And maybe for us, our role is like we want to see the city of Cincinnati turned upside down. And not in a rebellious, riotous kind of way, but in a way that like just brings radical love and serving and humility. Um, because if Paul did it, and if Peter did it, and the early disciples did it, they were great, but I don't see why we can't either. So I want to pray right now, all of us out loud at the same time. I know you thought that you came here and it's my job to work, but we're all going to work for a little bit. And let's pray that we would be people that would see the city of Cincinnati turned upside down. Let's go for it. So he leaves Thessalonica, and he goes to a place uh, in Berea, a, a place called Berea, and does the same thing. He's preaching the synagogues. He actually sees a lot of Greek converts there, a lot of Greek uh, non-Jewish people start to follow Jesus. And, um, and the Thessalonians here, so the Bereans actually were really receptive to Paul and the gospel, but the Thessalonians hear that he was there, and so they go, and they do the exact same thing. He gets kicked out of Berea, um, and he's forced to go on his own now to Athens. And again, there's a verse in uh, the section about Berea, maybe you've heard of this, or maybe you've heard the word Berean, especially if you have like a Christian suburb mom, because I like lived at the Berean uh, bookstore. It's like uh, a place that, it's like the Barnes and Nobles for like 
Christian women, mostly, I'm pretty sure. Um, but uh, it was named after these, this group of people, which comes out of verse 11 that says, uh, the Bereans examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul taught was true. So the Bereans were known as people that heard something, and, um, and then they made sure it lined up with what they had believed was already written, that God had already said. And uh, let's pray for that too. I want to pray that we would be people that would examine the scriptures. And if the world's giving us an update, or if um, someone that you know is, that you trust is giving you an update, well, I want to test it against scripture. If I'm teaching something, I think we should test what I'm saying against scripture. All of the things that we're hearing need to go through the filter of not just what God's saying, maybe through other people, but what God's already said through his word. So let's pray that we would also be people that examine the scriptures. So Paul leaves Berea, and he goes to Athens. And, uh, and Athens is not what it once was. Uh, there's a fraction of the population there. Uh, it had fallen from when Greece was the, uh, the leading culture and uh, kingdom of the day, and now it's Rome. And so Athens isn't quite what it was, but it's still an intellectual hub. It's a, it's a place where a lot of new thoughts are being shared um, because that was its history. And so in Acts 17... I want to read 16 to 18. It says, while Paul was waiting for them. So he's waiting for his friends. He got kicked out of Berea. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And so I want to break down. We're going to spend the rest of our time in Athens, figuratively, and, uh, and I want to break down the things that Paul did. Because here's, if you kind of read through the rest of Acts 17, Paul saw something, then he felt something, then he did something, and then he said something. Paul felt something, sorry, he saw something, he felt something, then he did something and said something. And so I want to break down Acts 17 based on those four things. And the first thing that it says in verse 16, it says, Paul saw something. He saw in 16 that the city was full of idols. A better translation in the, uh, in, or another translation in the original language is uh, that it was actually, it almost has the sense that it's under idols. Like the city was oppressed, it was being domineered by these gods that were kind of statues around the city. There was an oppression that he started to see around the city. Actually, Romans of the time, they would joke about Athens because hardly anybody lived there. Um, but there were so many statues and there were so many idols, they said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. That was being said about that city. And so Paul saw something. And then it said that Paul felt something. Same verse, it says that Paul was greatly distressed. He was greatly distressed. So he saw that and then he felt something. He felt distressed. Or even when you kind of look into that word, it, it gets the sense maybe back in Exodus when God says that he's jealous for his people, the, the indication is Paul was jealous for God. Like he was jealous that all of these inanimate statues were getting glory and honor that actually the one true God deserved. And so uh, Paul saw something and then he felt this distress and it moved him to do something. 
So in 17, it says that Paul went and he reasoned in the synagogue and the marketplace. The marketplace is called the Agora, if you've heard of like the Greek Agora or the Athens Agora. So he was in the marketplace. It's where kind of all the, you know, who's who were sharing ideas of what's new. But he also went to the synagogue where there were Jewish people. And here's what I want to notice. After he sees and feels something, his reaction, I think we could learn a lot from. Because his reaction, the thing that he does is neither negative nor neutral. It's positive. It's, it's neither negative nor neutral. So a negative reaction would be uh, throwing up your hands in disgust and cursing the Athenians and saying they're so dumb and they're destined for hell and you guys have it all wrong. A negative reaction might be what we would call today like a culture war where they just respond with only hate and no love. A neutral reaction, if that doesn't describe how you react, this one might because this one hits me. A neutral reaction is to do nothing. Paul doesn't do nothing. He doesn't say, well, you know, you do you, Athens, or, uh, you know, who am I to disagree with what you're worshiping? So he doesn't come down in hate, but he also doesn't do nothing. His response is what I would call a positive one. It's a positive response. It's a way that he moves towards the Athenians. He doesn't move away, He doesn't move aside and just let them keep doing. He moves towards them, but he does it in such a loving yet convicting way. And he invites them into the narrative that he now wants to share with them. One commentator said that as he was in the the marketplace that he was literally gossiping the gospel, which I love that picture. It's like a redeeming quality of gossip. Like, hey, did you hear about Jesus? Like, pretty raised from the dead. I heard he's not dead anymore. I just picture Paul. He's like, hey, did you hear? Did you hear the news? And he's gossiping the gospel in a way that is neither negative nor neutral, but positive. He's engaging them, and he's saying, hey, I think, I think what you're thinking might actually not be true. And we see that as he goes on to say what he says. And it says that as he's gossiping the gospel, as he's sharing the gospel, talking about Jesus in both the synagogue and the marketplace, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers start to approach him. And these would have been like the intellectual elites. And it doesn't seem like Paul's intimidated by them. So Epicureans, they followed a philosopher named Epicurus in the 3rd century BC. And Epicurus taught that anything materialistic was good. Uh, Pleasure is the greatest good in life. Actually, the chief end of what we're supposed to live our lives is to avoid pain. Anything that can get us away from pain and into experiencing the materialistic world in a way that is favorable to you is what Epicurus taught. We might call it hedonism today. And he said, look, you do what's best for you in any moment. And so that was the Epicurean thought. And then the Stoics, they were very different. They followed a guy, again in the 3rd BC, a philosopher called Zeno, named Zeno in Athens. And he taught something different. He taught divine pantheism. There was divinity in all things. And he said the chief end is to just basically chill out, feel zero emotion, I don't want you to feel any emotion negatively or positively. I want you to be indifferent towards pain or pleasure. The Stoic uh, thought was, if I can feel as little as possible, my emotions are evil, and so I've got to get rid of any kind of emotion. I just want to be even. And so you have these two competing thoughts, and these, these were the things that were opposing Paul at this moment in this city. And it's probably not exactly what we would say is, is with us. So I want to actually ask that question. I want to take a moment and just say, like, these were the cultural beliefs of that day. What are the cultural beliefs of today? 
because it might not be Epicurean, might not be Stoic. What are the cultural beliefs, cultural constructs that are coming into the world today? I mentioned one of them. Maybe it's like, you do you. I think that's more than just a phrase. That's like a whole construct of living. Uh, as long as I don't hurt anyone, it's fine. I feel like that's around uh, a decent amount. Or maybe uh, look out for number one. There's a lot to unpack behind that. And maybe you're thinking of other ones. Those are just off the top of my head. What are some phrases that actually identify some cultural belief systems, some constructs that we're living into? Basically, where is our idolatry? Because I don't think uh, it's silver idols as much as it was back in Athens anymore. Our idolatry looks different. But idolatry is um, anything that confines or domesticates God. So where are we confining or domesticating God? I don't want to keep asking this question. I want to really identify this for us. Um, I had to wrestle through this, so you should too, <laughs> as I was reading this. Are there areas of your life that you are confining God? Is there an area of your life that you're taking him and fitting him into your construct, your belief system, or maybe the belief system of the world? A way you can maybe test this, is there a part of the Bible that you skip or is there a thing in prayer that you don't pray about? Either I don't want to pray about it because uh, there's shame there, or I don't want to pray about it because I'm afraid of what God might say. Or there's a part of Scripture that just feels like it doesn't fit in 2021. Is there a construct that you're leaning against? Or is there an area that you're domesticating God? Is there an area uh, in our lives that we're elevating safety or comfort instead of the wildness of following Jesus? Is there a way that we've started to tame God? Is there an area of your um, beliefs or lifestyle that you've said, man, this has to be true, so I'm going to put God on top of it. I'm going to assume God would have said that. I'm going to assume God would approve of this. I'm going to assume God would love the way that I treat that person. I'm going to assume that God, and you start to not really ask the question, but kind of put God's stamp on the thing that you really just like to do or think or behave. Good morning, by the way. It's good to see you. Because Paul starts to attack the cultural beliefs of the day, and Paul was playing offense. Paul was playing offense, and so I think actually every now and then, in a loving way, we can play offense as well. Verse 19, it says, Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. The Areopagus was the hill of Ares. The Ares was like the, the Greek god of war. Uh, the Roman version would have been Mars. So this is Mars Hill. So before it was a church, it was actually a place. And uh, this is Mars Hill, Areopagus, same place. This is the showdown. This is like the big place. He's got invited to the big leagues. And this is an informal council. He's not on trial. Paul gets put on trial all the time. That's actually not what this is. But Paul is invited to share his ideas, and what they're going to do is determine, do we want this spreading around the city? Now, huge debate, uh, and you've probably heard this, what's the best sermon ever given at Mars Hill? Here's a picture of Paul preaching there, and I'd say like a lot of old, like staunchy religious people would say, yeah, it's got to be Paul, Paul's sermon. I'd actually argue that there's a, another one. It's starting mostly today, but I'd argue this is the best sermon ever preached at Mars Hill. Uh, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> Let's be honest, could Paul pull off that pink? 
So this, uh, Catherine and I, we, before we moved to Cincinnati, we got to live in Spain for a few months. We went to Athens. I preached a sermon. And you guys laugh at this? I think Catherine got saved there. I'm pretty <laughs> sure she gave her life to Jesus. So again, we'll not argue who had the better sermon. But Paul's preaching there. I had to at least like fake and kind of freak out some tourists, I'm pretty sure. But uh, Paul's at Mars Hill. It's the, it's the showdown of thought. It's where all the intellectual elites are, and he starts to share his idea. And this is what Paul said. So we know what Paul saw, felt, and did. Here's what Paul said. He stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant to the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And so he starts in verse 22 and he says, I can see that you're very religious. Literally what he's saying is I can see that you're in fear of the gods. And this actually isn't offensive to them. He's saying, you've even built an altar just to make sure you don't offend the one that you might have forgotten. And ignorant sounds like a strong word, but he's like, you're, you're not even aware of the God that you're worshiping here. I want to tell you about him. And he does this in such a way and he starts to talk about creation. And it's really fascinating if you look into like how Paul starts to preach in a synagogue versus how he starts to preach in Athens. It's very different. He starts with the Old Testament when he's talking to people that are religious, but that doesn't, I mean, these Greeks don't care who Abraham is. And so he starts with creation. He says, look, creation is where it all started, and it started with my God. Jesus never changes, right? The story of Jesus never changes, but how we present him, how we introduce him actually does. Jesus never changes, but how we introduce Jesus should change based on who we're talking to. We see Paul not change the story, but he changes the strategy over and over again based on what kind of people he's interacting with. And Paul does what I will call, and this is where we're going to be for the rest of the time, he does what I will call a cultural critique. Paul plays offense. And he said, uh, and if you read the whole thing, it, it, he said, look, you, you think that we came from these idols? Okay, but then you're going to turn around and say we've got to fashion them and build them and we have to give them something. Are you sure that we came from a God that then needs us? Are you sure that we came from a God that you actually have to like form out of metal? And he starts to very politely, but pretty firmly, show an inconsistency in their worldview. He starts to break down where their worldview might not actually lead to the place that you want. Hey, you've thought that this is going to lead to the results? Actually, I don't think so. What you're believing now will not get you the results that you want. Paul is not playing defense here. Paul doesn't play defense in Athens. He actually plays offense. He doesn't defend the gospel here. We see him going after and saying, look, you can believe whatever you want, but I don't think this is getting you the thing that you desire. And we see over and over, Paul has no problem defending the gospel. But every now and then, Paul plays offense. And he says, look, I'm done defending you know, what this might be uh, I think you might have a problem with what you're believing. And here's what he does. Here's how Paul plays offense. He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And this smacks pantheism right in the face. He says, look, Stoics, wrong, <laughs> wrong. Uh, it smacks them in the face and says, look, there is a God who created something. It's not, creation is not God. God made creation. And then he said, and he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And he says, no, no, guys, you got to understand. He didn't just create everything, but he's intimately involved in our lives. He loves us, he sees us, and he cares for us. 
and he confronts the agnosticism of the Epicureans. God's not just up there. No, no, you guys don't get it. God's down here. And so he addresses them and then them, and then he just addresses all of them in 26. And he says, and he, from one man, he made all the nations. Literally, that is one blood. He's saying we're all one blood. And it confronts the racism that was going on in Greece. He's like, hey, you think that everyone that's not Greek is a barbarian? Actually, I'm here to tell you, we're all equal. We're all from the same man. We're all from the same blood. And he starts to break down everything that they would have believed. He doesn't defend his thing or shy away or get intimidated by how smart they are. He says, actually, guys, I think that you're smart, right? Can't you see where this is going? Can't you see that this really isn't true? And he starts addressing their issues, not really as much defending his. Paul doesn't play defense. Paul plays offense. He critiques the Athenians, or he at least critiques their belief construct. He says, I don't think this is going to get you to where you want to go. This isn't, this isn't working. I don't think this is working for you. Jesus does this a lot as well. Jesus often goes on offense against culture. It's a great Sermon on the Mount tactic. You've heard it said, but I say to you. You've heard it said blank, but I say to you. What Jesus is doing there is he's critiquing the cultural constructs, the belief systems of the day, and introducing something new. Jesus was constantly doing this. He was constantly delivering a cultural critique. Because he came in and he said, look, the law's been good. The law's good, but the law played defense. The law played not to lose. And Jesus said, I've come to win. Like, I've come to play the game. I've come to actually do something about the problem, not just play defense. And the law, of course, was good for a time. But Jesus came and he said, look, I'm, I'm starting to break that down. I'm starting to introduce something new. And, uh, and as I was reading Acts 17 this week, and I really felt like, ah, oh, man, I think this is where we're supposed to go. I need you to know this. This is for me. I hope it's for you because you, like, came here. And, uh, but I've been playing a lot of defense lately. And I should. Like, I, care. I don't want to ever be offensive. We, don't, we should never strive to be offensive. Um, but I'm probably thinking more about, like, that than I am, like, oh, yeah, that's right. I carry something that, like, is moving and living and breathing, and it... Uh, it says that it's going to win at the end, and sometimes I act like it's not. I've been playing a lot of defense. And I'm reading this, and it's so much easier. Uh, if you've ever taught something, it's so much easier to teach something that you're good at. I feel like I'm teaching this this morning, and I'm just not that good at it. play a lot of defense. When it seems like Paul and Jesus are giving us permission to every now and then, politely, lovingly, humbly, play offense. So I want to do a little bit of that with our time left. I want to do a bit of a cultural critique. This might be uncomfortable, um, but it seems like Paul and Jesus were okay with playing offense, so I want to be okay with that as well. There's a phrase out there, <clears throat> and I just, want to, I just want to analyze it for a second. It's uh, speak your truth, right? Speak your truth. We've heard that. It sounds pretty good. It's actually pretty empowering. It's polite. It's firm. Um, but what happens... And stick with me here. What happens when your truth is, now hold on, wrong? We've all been wrong before, right? I was once a few years ago. It was uncomfortable. It's awful. <laughs> what happens when your truth is wrong? Or even I think the bigger question is, what happens when your truth and your truth and your truth are different? That is the recipe for outrage. And when we buy into this, 
when we buy into, and this is, the sermon's not on speak your truth. The sermon is like we play offense, and I just want to say, look, I, I can defend archaeologically, theologically, historically that the gospel's true. I also want to say, is this working? I don't think this is working. Speak your truth doesn't seem to be working because it seems like if you're speaking different truths, then we have a recipe for outrage. And so the world has invented speak your truth. I just want to extrapolate it for a second. Give me like two minutes. I want to take it 10 yards down the line, 10 steps down the system and see, does this actually get us what we want? I love to do this. You should do this often in decisions you make. If I, here's the question I ask, if everyone in the world did what I'm doing right now, what would happen? I used to be the person, like probably some of you, that uh, in traffic, I'd go all the way to the end of the merge lane and then like get in at the very last moment, <laughs> right? Right? Winning. Uh, until, I, and seriously, it's so insignificant and not spiritual, until I was like, I wonder what would happen if everybody did what I did. It'd be chaos. Nobody could do this if they were actually in a hurry because everybody would need to win and not let that person in. And so, by the grace of God, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> There's lots of bigger issues that I probably still need to work on, but I don't do that anymore. And if you do it, what you're feeling right now is the conviction of the Lord. <laughs> so let's extrapolate just way down the line. Um, speak your truth. What happens if your truth and your truth are different? Well, we know that that leads to outrage. So let's call speak your truth what it really is. Speak your truth is actually speak my truth. Okay, so speak your truth is actually speak my truth. And what speak my truth is, is actually um, the deification of each one of us. All of us get to become gods because my truth is the equivalent to God. So speak your truth is really speak my truth, which is really just the deification of myself. And so now here's what we have. Follow me here. We're all a bunch of gods walking around speaking with the authority of gods, wondering why a world full of gods isn't working. And here's the option we have. We can either look at the construct and say, that might not be working, but what we're doing instead is saying, man, their gods must not be aligning with my God. They need to work on that. And so when we start to extrapolate out, just a, a simple thing that's you know, not, in my opinion, working in culture, we see, oh, wow, we can play offense as well. I feel like we've got a great piece of news, but when we start to work that out, man, it seems like speak your truth really just turns out to be outrage and cancel and hatred instead of, at least in the church, glorifying the one who actually has the truth. And we can do this in lots of areas of life. And some things are actually really good. But extrapolate out, what if everybody in the world did what that person's doing? Or what if everybody in the world did exactly what I'm doing? What if everybody in the world posted like I'm posted? What if everybody in the world treated the barista like I treat the barista? And you run it down the line and see, is the world better or worse? Does it look more like Jesus or less like Jesus? And we can start to do a bit of this cultural critique. Athens wasn't working. Athens was not working, so Paul played offense. And I'd propose today just like a, a brief survey of some of the things that we're doing, and I'd say, I don't know if today it's really working either. And I think it's okay that we can point that out. Oh, but you've got to point it out lovingly. Oh, humbly. We don't do it because we are know-it-alls. We don't do it because we carry the news that nobody else has. That will be dropped in a second, and it should be. But we can lovingly play offense. Paul ends in verse 30 and 31. He says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. 
What he's saying is God is coming back, and he's asking us to turn back to him. God's coming back, and, and there's some way that we can move back towards him. One uh, scholar says this, and this is really convicting, because Paul makes sure to know, like, hey, there's, you know, justice is such a hard word these days, consequences is a hard word. He's like, like, there's a cost to not doing this. There's a cost to not jumping in. And one scholar says, many people reject the gospel not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. Band can come up. They perceive the gospel not to be false, but to be trivial. And we likely don't speak like Paul spoke because we don't feel what Paul felt. And that, that's where I'm at. Usually I don't speak at all. But if I do, it comes from a place that's a little bit welling up with anger. Paul spoke from a place of sadness and compassion. Paul spoke the way he did because he felt the things that he felt. Remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Not God was so fed up with the world. God was so angry at the world. God so loved the world. And that's what moved Jesus. And so we can play offense, but we play offense differently. We can trust that we carry something that's worth carrying, but we carry it with humility and love, not with anger. Because, guys, Jesus is worth playing offense for. Jesus is so worth playing offense for. He actually ran the greatest offense of all time. What looked like defeat and discouragement and retreat at the cross actually turned out to be offense and victory in the tomb. It's amazing. It was the greatest trick play of all time. What looked like defense turned out to be offense, and he introduced a kingdom that has not stopped advancing for 2,000 years, and it will not stop. And we just get to be invited into that. Jesus played offense for us. He thought that you were worth fighting for. Seriously, he thought like you were worth fighting for. He set you free. He calls you his child. He thinks you're awesome. And he says that you are totally and 100% unequivocally worth it. And we get to play offense for him. We get to join him on what he's doing. It's worship.